Hey guys, before we dive into this episode, I want to mention show sponsor Haya Health. Now, I've made a big point on the show to only work with brands that I actually believe in, uh, would actually use myself, or am currently using, and this brand hits all three of those markers. I'm talking about Haya Health. This is a children's line of vitamins that was created by two dads who were looking for something better to give their children. If you look at most vitamins, they are completely full of fillers and sugar. Hey, I like candy. I like to eat it, but I don't want to eat a vitamin thinking I'm doing something good for myself when I'm actually just eating candy. I'd rather just enjoy the candy experience by itself. But with Haya, your kids are actually going to be getting a lot more nutrition with these vitamins, and they've also taken care of the convenience factor. They deliver them to your door monthly in cute, eco-friendly packaging. So if you are interested in helping your kids get the nutrition they need to be at their best, check out HayaHealth.com forward slash unstressed. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com unstressed, and that will get you 50% off your first order. So go to HayaHealth.com forward slash unstressed and check them out today. This episode is also sponsored by Brittany Watkins Tapping. Now I had her on the show. I think that was episode 238. I've linked it in the show notes here. Definitely go check that out. But we're talking about tapping and how that can help you lose weight. So as I have come to understand tapping is it's a way to sever the emotional connection to a memory with a tendency or a coping mechanism that you've developed later on in life. So if your coping mechanism is to eat salty or sweet foods to, to deal with uncomfortable emotions, tapping would be a way to break that connection. So it's not like you wouldn't enjoy those foods anymore. You just wouldn't need them to deal with the emotional trauma. Um, it severs that particular connection. And I can vouch, I did it with Nutella with her and I still enjoy Nutella, but it's like, it's, I can actually taste the Nutella for what it is. I don't get that emotional feeling when I eat it like I did before working with her. And that's as easy a way as I can describe it to you. So it works. It works. Tapping works. And Brittany delivers the information and the skills in such a way that you're going to get it and it's going to work for you quickly. So I highly recommend working with her. And she is, of course, offering you a deal as a Motherhood Unstressed listener. Just head over to brittanywatkins.com forward slash unstressed to get started and it will save you 50% off her program. I mean, if you have been doing therapy, doing all the things and nothing has worked, I highly recommend going to brittanywatkinstapping.com forward slash unstressed. You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so glad that you're here. And if this is the first time that you're tuning in, welcome. I'm so glad that you found the show and all these amazing guests that we've had over the years. And today is no exception, because if you're like many adults, you've experienced issues coping with all that the pandemic has brought upon our lives. But children are also being severely impacted. Even before the pandemic started, unprecedented rates of childhood anxiety and depression existed, with one in five children under the age of 18 diagnosed with a mental health disorder. More kids are affected by mental health than asthma, peanut allergies, diabetes, and cancer combined. Post-pandemic, those numbers are expected to climb even higher. Now, in this episode, I'm sitting down with leading child and adolescent psychiatrist and president of Child Mind Institute, Harold Kopowitz, MD, to discuss his timely new book, The Scaffold Effect, Raising Resilient, Self-Reliant, and Secure Kids in the Age of Anxiety. Now, in this episode, he's sharing 
powerful and clinically tested parenting strategies that are going to teach you competence and resilience in everyday life, as well as prevent and counteract the general anxiety and emotional fragility prevalent in children and teenagers today. So you might want to grab a pen and paper because a lot is going to be coming at you. A lot of valuable, valuable information from this amazing guest. I'm so glad that he's on the show and that this book is out into the world. Uh, It's linked in the show notes. Make sure you go click on that and get his book today. And uh, if you get a lot out of this episode, please share it with a friend. And of course, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That does so much to get it out to more and more parents all over the world. So without further ado, please enjoy my episode with Dr. Harold Koppelwitz. Well, hello, Dr. Koppelwitz. Welcome to the show. I am so glad that you're here. Thank you. Please call me Harold. I will. I will. Um, And I, I really believe your book couldn't have come out at a better time. Anxiety among children is already at an all-time high. I think I was reading one in five suffer from some sort of mental issue. Um, How much do you think the pandemic has added to those numbers? So I think um, in a good day in America, before COVID, it was one out of five, right? So that means everyone who's listening or watching uh, knows and loves one of these children, right? So if it's not your son or daughter, it is your niece or nephew or your best friend's kids. COVID is awful. COVID is a stressor that's affecting five out of five kids with more social isolation, distance learning, financial stress, worries about your parents or grandparents' health. And those stressors, unfortunately, are not acute. This is a marathon. This has been going, soon it'll be a full year that we've been living like this. And while there's an end in sight, uh, unfortunately, it's at least another six or seven months before we'll get back to some new normal. Um, and so it has made the anxious kid, it has made the depressed kid, it's made the kid who has ADHD more symptomatic. Amazingly, though, there's a whole bunch of anxious kids who don't look symptomatic because they're not being forced to leave mom and dad to go to school. They're not having to deal with the social you know, interaction that makes certain socially anxious kids who are very um, pathologically self-conscious um, problematic. But we are going to see a wave of an epidemic of anxiety disorders once COVID is done. It's interesting, Liz. I didn't write this book thinking about COVID. I wrote this book over a year and a half ago thinking about the fact that most of the kids who come to the Child Mind Institute are like most kids in America who don't even have a mental health disorder. And how do parents who feel so guilty about doing too much, too little, they are working, they shouldn't work, it's because of a bad marriage, it goes on and on, the marriage is too good. What could we do to restructure the way we parent our kids? And the metaphor that we're helping a building go up or sideways or a split level, um, and we're the scaffold. We Good parenting essentially accentua- accentuates the assets and decreases the deficits. And a scaffold does just that, it's temporary. So you offer structure, you offer support, you offer encouragement, but you also are doing it as the building is going up. And I think about, you know, I have three sons. My oldest son, I thought should be a doctor. That was my blueprint. You know, (laughs) you should be a doctor. You're great at science. I love being a doctor. Uh, It was clear by the time he was in high school, he said, I hate the sight of blood. (laughs) I don't want to be a doctor. I don't like kids as much as you. I'll always be the wrong Dr. Koplowitz if I become a psychiatrist. And he made it clear that he was going to do music and became a DJ, by the way. Look, I really like there were three white Jewish DJs, Mark Lanz, <laughs> Jay Cassidy and DJ Josh Kay. 
And so you kind of got used to the fact that I wasn't getting a skyscraper. I was getting, you know, um, a ranch. And I and my wife and I were scaffolding. He wanted more equipment. He he wanted to take more classes in music. Whatever it was, we helped uh, giving support, structure, and encouragement. And then the summer between his junior and senior year of college, he went and spent the summer at Goldman Sachs. And we thought, what an odd thing to do. And it was a rough summer. You know, he just didn't seem, he was simultaneously still DJing. He was helping produce a movie of Irish convicts who were competitively flying pigeon pigeons. You know, he was an artsy guy. That's yeah. what we, you know, he was going to be what a, uh, a studio or that's not, we, we weren't getting a skyscraper. And at the end of the summer, he said, oh, I have good news and bad news. I said, well, give me the bad news. He said, no, I have to give you the good news first. I said, what's the good news? I was offered a position at Goldman for next year mm-hmm. and I can get $10,000 if I sign right away. I said, what's the bad news? I was offered a position at Goldman. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm not sure. Should I take it? Not take mm-hmm. And the fact that he took this job and that today he runs his own private equity firm I think speaks to the fact that you as parents, it's his blueprint, right? And so right. we constantly have to change the, the scaffold moves, right? It keeps and it goes away. And if we do our job correctly, Liz, later on in life, our kids know when to put up their own scaffold. So if they're in college and they're struggling with math, they know to go get a tutor. And if they need a write, you know, they're struggling with a paper, there's a writer's laboratory or workshop. They go there. They don't feel bad about the fact that there's a few shingles falling off, uh, and I think that's really important. It is, but I mean, is this is this way you look at life and all the research that you've come across? Do you think you've come to this point because of your medical training, or is it who you are and who your wife is as people? So I would tell you that I I have to read this book out loud or audible. <laughs> so wow. it's much hard. Writing is much easier than saying the words out loud. And I came home and said, I should have written this book 35 years ago. Mm. There's so many things I did wrong. And in the book, as a matter of fact, I make fun of myself. I say, you know, don't do this at home. Um, Which was know. so refreshing. Thank you. Oh, th- well, I appreciate that. But, but you know, um, one of the planks, you know, if the pillars are support and structure and encouragement, one of the planks is patience, but also dispassion. And I, mm-hmm. I have a lot of trouble being dispassionate in general. And so I tell that story in the book where, you know, um, my oldest son goes off to sleepaway camp. I really didn't like sleepaway camp. I didn't like sleepaway camp. I was a homesick kind of guy. I had a lot of separation anxiety and I was really an inadequate athlete and a tremendous disappointment to my father, who was a real jock. And mm. it wasn't like he said, you're a disappointment. He just stopped throwing the ball at me. You know, he stopped coming to the tennis courts when I was playing tennis. And um, so I was determined that my kids would have a great time at sleepaway camp because I think sports, particularly for boys and actually now for girls, is a natural way to make friends, you know, yeah. especially when you're in middle school and high school and college. And so I was incredibly disappointed that when I got up to camp, you know, he had tears in his eyes. He hugged me really tight. I said, what's the matter? He said, I don't want to stay here. Mm-hmm. And we walked into the woods and I, I felt like saying, what do you, you know, I gave you all the tools. You know how to catch a ball. You know how to serve a tennis ball. You know how to sail a boat. You know how to swim. I didn't say any of these things, but he came out and said, there's no one here to love me. No. As soon as he said that, I, like the wave of homesickness came over me and mm-hmm. I got tearful. And my son said to me, dad, don't cry. And I thought, 
I'm not supposed to cry. You know, what I mean? <laughs> I'm supposed to empathize with them, but this, he's not supposed to make me feel better. I'm supposed to help him with this. And, um, and it's very hard very often to be dispassionate and to say, this is not about me. This is about them. Um, but I really think that today parents do need this. They, they need a new plan because I think in some ways parents don't realize that by being a helicopter parent or a concierge parent or a neglectful parent, one who just is laissez-faire, mm-hmm. is really very challenging because kids are facing more competition in school and, and they, need our, they need the scaffold. But we, and if you do the scaffold right, they could become an enthusiastic electrician or yeah. they could become a great abstract painter even though they might not make a lot of money at it, or they might be super successful, or they might go and become a banker. Um, but it, it isn't our blueprint. It's their blueprint, and it's our job to keep helping them. And I think it changes when you're a preschooler and when you're a teenager or you're just a school-age kid. The role of the parent changes consistently uh, because eventually you have to take the scaffolding down. The, the building has to stand up on its own. Yeah, um, let's let's talk about that. How do how does a parent listening to this who's a parent of a five-year-old differ in their scaffolding technique than a parent of a 15, 16-year-old who doesn't want anything to do with their parents? Well, I think it, it's, let's think about it again, structure, um, support, and encouragement. So one of the ways we structure a child is we want them to leave their comfort zone, right? And we want them to go into a growth zone, you know, not a danger zone where it's too overwhelming, and they have like toxic anxiety, but you want them to go on a play date. And so when they go on that play date, how do you uh, use your encouragement to make sure that they go back again? And teaching parents how to do small talk, just like you do at a cocktail party, right. is really important. You don't want to infantilize your kid who's four or five, but you want to talk about what was the best part of the play date and what was the part that you didn't like. That's you're going to get many words to answer that question versus did you have fun on your play date? You right. get a yes or a no. If you ask a conceptual question of, do you think you and Josh are going to become friends? The kid's going to look confused. <laughs> and so if you, now it's interesting because when you have a 16 year old, how you talk to your 16 year old, chit chat is still important. Small talk is still important, but you have to be ready for the big talks also where a kid will ask you your your opinion about did you smoke marijuana when you were a kid? Um, you know what was the you know did you use pot? And by the way, people my age called marijuana uh, dope. <laughs> dope <laughs> is not what they call it. So you have to have the language right because if you say do you smoke dope, your kid is going to say no. You are a dope. You know? <laughs> so it requires you know knowing the language, being able mm. to ask questions, keeping those lines of communication open. Also, remembering that part of the planks of that scaffold are patience and warmth and dispassion, as I said before, and the ability uh, that all helps you communicate. So it's going to be, I think it's much harder to be the parent in some ways of a teenager because you have to start recognizing that you have lost control and Mm. that the scaffold's never more important, but at the same time, you have to recognize that your child is going to be out of your sight for many, many hours a day. I mean, during COVID now, you know, if your kid doesn't want to wear a mask, he's going to take off the mask when you're not around. So you really want to make sure that there's this patience and warmth and communication going on so that they are telling you the truth, so that they're not going to get you sick or they're not going to get grandma and grandpa sick. 
So I, I think it's um, I, I think it's an everlasting uh, point where you hope by the time they're graduating college or graduating their you know whatever their uh, professional school is or their um, their choice of occupation that you can safely start taking down the scaffolding and you do that by the way all along and you can tell when it has to keep coming back you mean if you, oh, touch, okay. if you take it down too quickly you might have a kid who's just not functioning as well or feels shaky I right. mean um I, I think that you know I obviously love being a parent in fact if you read the dedication of the book I dedicated this book to all three of my sons and it and I will tell you that the day my oldest son was born I was shocked at the kind of transformative moment you have in that delivery room, mm. you know, all this oxytocin, you know, your wife is yelling and it's <laughs> like such a drama and you really have no role. And, and then the baby. Oh, you have a role. <laughs> right. But you know, they, they can have the baby without you. Do you mean mm. the baby comes out, the OB is there. You're, it's such a good feeling. And they finally hand you the baby and you look at the baby and you say, Oh my God, this baby looks just like my mother and my father-in-law. How is this possible? That you know, <laughs> those genes have come through, mm -hmm. but you find yourself in this position where it's a truly one-way street. If your kids give you anything back, that's a bonus, right? You have to care for this kid. You have to clothe the child, shelter the child, feed the child. Um, and most probably the metaphor is that you do have to scaffold that, even when the kid's walking and even when the kid's talking, there is guidance that has to go along without overdoing, without being overbearing, without, you know, without saying, I want a skyscraper and you're giving me a ranch. Something is wrong here, you know, because then the scaffolding doesn't work. And, and you have also have to stay on their level because it doesn't work if the scaffolding is up here and you're screaming down at the building or you're down here. So I think it's, it, it actually, my hope would be that people will adopt it, not if you have a kid who has a mental health problem, that's just more challenging, but just in general, giving you some guideposts of making, in my opinion, the best job you'll ever get significantly easier. And, and, and something that you could keep going back to and saying, okay, I, a do-over. I think parenting, by the way, is one of the places where you could actually say, I want a do-over. So if you oh. yell at your kid or if you, the punishment's too lenient or the punishment's too severe, that you can come back and say, you know what, I overreacted. I'd like a do-over, please. And you can tell the, tell the child, no, you're not punished for ever. I mean, there's, there's that scene in the book where my youngest son, um, someone calls me and says, I'm sorry to tell you this, but Sam was at some party on Saturday and he was either stoned out of his head or he was just drunk as, you know, he was you know, plastered. And my gut response was exactly what you tell parents not to say, say no, it must be mistaken. And, <laughs> and then you feel um, incredible shame and embarrassment. I'm the psychiatrist. People are talking about me at a dinner party about what an inadequate parent I am. You know, I think I should go to school, pull him out of school and beat him on the street so people should see that I did seriously. <laughs> and, you know, and eventually I get my wife on the phone and she says, no, it must be a mistake. It's not Sam. I said, no, I'm a few hours ahead of you. <laughs> I've thought about it. But then how do you recalibrate the relationship? Because there's no doubt you're disappointed. You, you feel deceived. You feel that someone you trusted isn't trustworthy. And there has to be a consequence that sends the message, you know, you can't lie and you can't break rules. And at the same time, we still love you yeah. and we're still here for you. But this was unacceptable. 
And, you know, when you were a kid, your father and mother said, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I'm not sure, but sometimes it does feel painful to have to say there's a consequence here, but you have to remember why you're doing it. You know, the, the reason is to help the building grow, to be stronger, to be sturdy, so that the next time around, they'll they'll be able to self-monitor. I love that. And I love that you said that you can go back, you can amend the relationship and even how you parent. I think a lot of parents listening to this who have older children might think that it's too late. They've been the tiger mom. They've been the helicopter parent for too long. Have I already ruined my child? What would you say to them? What can they do? I, I think you can redraw the blueprint all the time. Okay. And it's not easy. So it takes, so I think humans do two things. We negatively track, we track what's wrong. I mean, we are terrific at telling you what's wrong with our kids, what's wrong with our wife, what's wrong with our husband, what's wrong with our secretary or assistant, our colleagues. We're just wired that way. And negative tracking is, if you're going to track only negative, you're going to have to pull back and say, okay, let's track every behavior, okay? And let's focus on positives. And so can we say three positive things, which is not in our nature, for every one time we're going to do constructive criticism. So you're going to have to catch your child doing something good and say, oh, thank you so much for setting the table. I really appreciate that you did that. And you did a really good job. I mean, the kid is going to think you're a body snatcher. Someone is <laughs> but it, it takes a few weeks of this changed behavior. And then when you do the one negative and you're able to say something, you have to think carefully, is this worth spending that mm-hmm. one, I have to do three nice things to do that one, that can redraw, the, that can clearly redraw the blueprint so that your kid starts to get used to the fact that you're monitoring positives instead of negatives. The other part that we do, and every American will recognize this, we have confirmation um, bias or confirmation affirmation. We watch Fox and, or we watch MSNBC and we live in this bubble and we believe it again and again. Well, we do that with our kids. There's a mm-hmm. bad kid. There's a good kid. There's the lazy kid. There's, you know, the spoiled kid. I love when parents tell me, oh, he's spoiled. And I think he's not spoiled. Fish get spoiled. Meat gets spoiled. <laughs> gets spoiled. How is he spoiled? He doesn't appreciate all the wonderful things we have. I'm thinking, of course he doesn't appreciate it. He was always brought up in this house. He doesn't know that you all came from a small apartment. You know, he always had a housekeeper or he always went to private school or he always went to a great school in the suburbs, or he, you know, he, he always had a mom and dad who's been super attentive to him. So it's not a matter of being spoiled. He might not appreciate it because no one has pointed out that this is special. And you, it's very hard to break that. And you have to pull back and again, help the parents say, I'd like you to track all behavior and in particular good behavior. And you know what? All of a sudden, instead of constantly saying, please, you're chewing with your mouth open. Please put the napkin in your lap. Insignificant stuff. Actively ignore. So if a parent can learn how to catch their kid doing good, label it specifically, actively ignore, very hard for people who have trouble with dispassion, actively ignore insignificant off-test behavior, and then only save it for truly egregious behavior. You know, your kid is drunk, your kid drives while drunk, your kid has stolen some money, your kid is doing, you know, is smoking marijuana every day of the week and, and before he goes to school. Those are times where you have to save, you know, the bullets, so to speak, or the consequences because they're going to be significant. And he knows or she knows that there's a balance here. And in fact, you really, you're, you're just to enjoy the joy you have of all the good stuff the kid does. And that yeah. can happen. 
takes two or three weeks. In fact, I outline it in the scaffold effect exactly how you can monitor because it means you have to change also. The most important thing I would tell you during COVID and during parenting is self-care. Every time I go on an airplane, the flight attendant says, oh, and if the oxygen drops or the air pressure drops and the mask comes down, please remember, put the mask on yourself first before you put it on your kid. And I think, really? I'm going to, my kid's going to be gasping for air and I'm going to take care of myself first. Well, if you aren't strong, if you aren't breathing oxygen, you can't only, you know, if your kid is fighting with the mask, you can't help him. If you have more than one child, you're not going to be able to do that. Self-care is really child care. And during COVID, it has become so easy to neglect the amount of sleep we get, the amount of fun we have, the, the nutrition, the mindfulness. I mean, the other key thing I keep saying to parents is try to be mindful for one minute. Start mm-hmm. your day with just one minute. It's not transcendental meditation. It might not be as effective as real, you know, a different kind of mindful practice. But if we could just spend one minute uh, a day to start with, just with your thoughts, don't fight them, leave them there. They'll pass. They won't pass. Listen to the your heartbeat. Listen to the sounds outside the traffic, then the buzzing noise of the um, light. It doesn't make a difference. Just be with yourself for one minute. That one minute will very quickly turn into three or four. And what a wonderful modeling you're doing for your child that you can reset. You can, without telling them their amygdala is going to calm down, yeah. they can reset. And the other thing that I think we need to do when COVID's around or not is we have to show gratitude. Our kids have to see us, you know, once, if we don't go to church, we don't go to synagogue, you don't go to a mosque, once a week as a family, when you're sitting down to be able to say, you know, why are we happy? Or why do I feel lucky? You know, I'm so lucky that we're sitting here together. I'm so lucky we're, we're going to eat lots of carbohydrates <laughs> or we're having ice cream for desserts. So it could be insignificant. Or I'm so glad grandma and grandpa are healthy and we're going to Zoom with them tonight. And yeah. being able to do that, uh, again, is a different way of saying we're more than just your tests and your and your baseball and your worries about COVID. Um because I, I think one of the things we want to make sure parents are doing is that they're reinforcing effort and praising effort, not the product. Uh-huh. Because that's, you could get stuck with all those A's and all those, you know, I, I think, um, I, it's not in the book, but years ago, I was walking um, in Manhattan and I went to have summer, my wife was in the country with three little kids and I was having a bachelor dinner with a friend and in passing, he said to me, you know, so-and-so, they make a million dollars a year. This was 30 years ago. And, you know, so-and-so, he makes $2 million a year. and He can barely put two sentences together. And I was thinking, does he know how little money I make? You know? <laughs> and, and at a certain point, he said, well, Harold, you can't compare yourself to, I didn't say a word, but he said, you could see I was uncomfortable. He said, you can't compare yourself to these people. After all, you're just a physician. I thought, just a physician? Do you know how hard it is to get into medical school, how much I love being a physician? Anyway, I walked out of that dinner thinking to myself, oh, my God, I live on this little island in Manhattan. Everyone must be making a million dollars. Everyone was making I must have missed the day at school or they <laughs> tore the pages out of the book. Or how did this happen? And does everyone know how little money I make? And as I'm walking down the street on Madison Avenue, beautiful summer night, Paul Newman and his wife, Joanne Woodward, famous movie stars, certainly 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, 
and he's shorter than you would think, and he has bluer eyes than you would think, okay? Mm-hmm. And she had blonde hair, and he had his arm wrapped around her. He clearly liked her, and I'm just too cool to say hello, right? You know, we're passing, and they say to me, hi, how are you? It's so good to see you. And instead of me saying, do I know you? You know, <laughs> oh, it's so good to see you. And they say, aren't we lucky? We live in Manhattan. It's such a beautiful day in Central Park. And I said, yes, we're so lucky. Well, I hope to see you soon. I said, great. Stay well, and I walk away. And instead of me thinking, isn't that wild? Two of the most famous movie stars in the world think they know me, you know? Uh, instead, I kept thinking, each one of them is making more than a million dollars. And I told my wife the story. She said, this is absurd. You're a child psychiatrist. If you want to make a million dollars a year, you're going to have to go and do something else. But you love being a child psychiatrist. Like, go to sleep. You'll feel better in the morning. But I thought about how belittling it could be to a child who lives in this bubble, who is struggling with math and he gets a C plus and is, he worked with a tutor and it's really a success, but all around him, forget about millionaires, billionaires, Pulitzer Prize winners, you know, Oscar winners, Tony winners, it diminishes them. And what a parent has to do, and this is 30 some years ago, I thought to myself, it's a scaffold. You have to protect your child and say, congratulations. We're so proud of you. Let's have you know, a special, you know, toast to you tonight, because that C plus was really terrific, which is really what you want. You want that effort. You want the kid to run the race. It's not that he needs to get a prize for coming in seven, seventh or eighth, but that you did, you ran the race, you made it around the reservoir. You, and this not only happens in Manhattan and in LA and in Silicon Valley, this happens everywhere. Kids can feel diminished by all the success and ease they have of the, seeing that success, instead of saying, you know, I really worked hard. Um, and, and I'm so proud that that's, that's the encouragement, remember, the structure and the support. Yeah. I mean, oh gosh, so many questions just sprouted to my mind after you said that. And it's almost like, were you always so self-aware, you know, so sensitive that is that what got you into this profession, being able oh. to understand others? Because it's so clear. I mean, it's like you, you're able to just see it from a, a wider perspective where so many people are just in their tunnel. So it's, it, it can't, I think what I was saying, by the way, with that pizza and that guy who said, you're just a physician, that I got stuck in that tunnel very quickly. I got, you know, and thankfully I had a wife who said, you know, maybe you should snap out of this and think <laughs> this a little bit. I understand you want to make a million dollars, but let's be realistic. Um, I love being a doctor and I, you know, I know it's so trite when you say to people, if you really love what you do, it doesn't seem like work. It doesn't seem like work. But how did I become a child psychiatrist? Um, I ha- In the book, I said, my parents were Holocaust survivors. Mm. And unlike the typical picture of a Holocaust survivor, my parents actually were incredibly optimistic. And because of their affluence before the war, they didn't leave. They could have, there were plenty of moments where you could jump over and go from Poland to Russia, or you know, they had friends who went to the World's Fair in 1939 before the Germans marched into Poland. There were ways to do this, and they thought, no, we're so successful, we'll be fine. And so the message that I got from my parents was that the only thing that mattered was what's in your head, because essentially that's all you could carry with you if you ever have to leave again, you know, if you have to go somewhere. And so there was a lot of pressure on becoming a doctor. You mean, mm-hmm. they were both lawyers before the war. My father actually graduated law school. My mother was in law school. Law is different in Poland than it is in the United States. It's Napoleonic versus, they, they weren't going to be lawyers in the United States. They had to go back to school. My mother became a social worker. My father opened a, you know, a, a manufacturing firm. But 
So there was this thought of being a doctor is good. You t- people are sick, you make them well. And I was going to become a pediatrician. I thought, I love kids. I love, you know, I really always was one of those. I, could, I was a natural counselor. You know, I liked kids. The trouble was that um, I had a terrific um, ad- a mentor in medical school who really yelled at me and said, mm-hmm. what you're going to, I was already starting pediatrics. He said, this is a dead end for you. You should be on the frontier somewhere. Mm-hmm. And pediatrics, kids come in, they're sick. Most of them get well by themselves. Right. And if they're really sick, you send them to a specialist. That is not what you want to do. So if you want to do pediatric neurology, if you want to do pediatric oncology, uh, cardiology, okay. And he said, but the, the place that's changing the most is psychiatry. And I said, psychiatry, aren't they playing with children on the floor, you know, yeah. interpreting dreams? And he said, no, the field is really changing. He said, they're starting to use medicine with kids. They're doing CAT scans. He didn't even know about functional MRIs. He said, it's really about brain science. And I made that change to first go into, you have to become an adult psychiatrist before you become a child psychiatrist. But he was right. And the fact that after, what, 30 years of doing this, I still find it intriguing that we're now looking at the way the brain connects to itself and that that might be diagnostic. And that sometime during my professional lifetime, we might even have a biomarker. Or the fact that there are psychosocial interventions like the scaffold effect that actually have a positive response in two or three weeks. And, and if you can, and the brain is so much better when it's young, you know, under the age of 24, it's kind of amazing. Take any kid under the age of 24 and drop them in the middle of China without anybody else. And within a few months, they'll be speaking Chinese. Drop an old person like me in the middle of China and I'll be doing sign language and eating a lot of rice. Because <laughs> and that's because I have an old brain. And, and the fact that at 25, that Hertz lets you rent a car has everything to do with the fact that your prefrontal cortex is finally communicating to the rest of your brain and you're learning about cause and effect. And, and, and 24 happens to be the point where under 24, 75% shows the onset of, your, of psychiatric illness, 50% before the age of 14. So 25, your brain is getting, it's harder for you even, and you're significantly younger than me, to learn new things. And so how wonderful that because of child psychiatry, I could change a kid's life. I, I write about that in the book. After six months, we can see different brain patterns and different patterns of behavior that will not only change, get rid of symptoms, but will put the child on a whole other trajectory. And I mean, I feel I'm blessed. I, you know, I've had, I've been doing this long enough and I also do enough TV because I think public awareness is really important. Mental health disorders are not only the most common disorders, but they're real, they're common and they're treatable. And somebody should be talking about that. Yes. And so if you do that a few times a year, your patients never forget you. So they see you when they're seven, when they're eight, and then their mother screams out, oh, look, it's your child's guidance. They have no memory of seven, eight, but they saw you when they were 14. They saw you when they were 20, not in person, but for those few seconds. So um, around 10 years ago or so, I got a phone call um, and the secretary takes it and says, there's a man on the phone. And he said that he saw you 25 years ago and he needs to speak to you. And his name is so-and-so. And I and we can't find the chart. I said, mm-hmm. no problem. I know exactly who it is. And he said, really? Wow. Yeah, I absolutely remember. And I get on the phone with the kid and the adult, and he tells me that, do you remember me? I said, sure, you went to this school, you're in second grade, you loved baseball, um, 
your parents didn't like me. He said, how did you know that? I said, because I was once walking down the street and your parents walked to the other side. (laughs) And you love sleepaway camp. And he said, do you have a chart? I said, no, I just, I remember this very well. And, um, and I remember, you know, he had ADHD and his parents didn't like the fact that 30 some odd years, this is 30 years ago. Yeah. It's around 30 years ago that I suggested medication, which was a big deal. Mm-hmm. They listened to me, but then once he started taking the meds, it became very clear he also had reading problems. I mean, his he was not a good student. So he tells me, you know, it's an economic tsunami. It was 2009 or 2000, yeah, 2009. He said, I'm losing my business. My marriage is in trouble. Um, I really need to speak to a psychiatrist, which is pretty impressive, right? The scaffold yeah. needs to put it. I said, tell me where you live and I'll get you the name of a good psychiatrist. He said, I live in New York and I want to talk to you. I said, but I'm a child psychiatrist. He said, but you're my child psychiatrist. No, I want to see you. So he comes in to see me. He's an adult. You know, he was a beautiful child. He's a handsome man. And he says to me, Dr. Koplitz, you haven't changed at all. And I thought, you know, (laughs) (laughs) let's call him Christopher. Christopher, if that's true, then you need an ophthalmologist, <laughs> not, not a psychiatrist. So he sits down and he tells me his story. And it's it's very hard to tell what's going on because so many bad things are happening to him. So they're real. And when really bad things happen to people, they feel miserable. They, they get demoralized, which is different than depression. And I couldn't tell if it was depression or demoralization. But while he started to talk, he started to weep. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I don't remember you being so weepy, Christopher. I remember you being, he said, I'm not weepy. I think I saved my tears for you. I mean, really? And then an hour was up and I said, you know, don't, I can't figure this out right now. We'll meet tomorrow or the day after. He says to me, you know, I, I know you said this is free, but I checked with your secretary. You charge a lot of money. I said, it is free. It's pro bono. And we'll figure this out. I promise you I'll figure this out. And he stood up and he looked so sad and, you know, we're afraid to touch patients, but he was 35 years old or 32 years old. I figured, you know, I hugged him. He weeped a little bit. He came back two days later and he came in and he said, you know, Dr. Kofluitz, I have to tell you, I knew when you hugged me it was, that you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't abandon me because I remember you came to my school once and observed what was going on. And you told me I had a mean teacher. I didn't believe you. <laughs> she was very mean. She was picking on him. You know, he was always confirmation bias. He was the bad kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and after another hour and a half, we figured out it was real depression. He had lost his libido. He wasn't eating. He lost around six pounds. And you give him an antidepressant and you wait six weeks, you know, two, two to six weeks. He came back to what he was before. But the fact that I could do that for someone that I, you know, what other profession gives you that opportunity to see a seven-year-old and then 25 years later, he comes back in and feels like he could get back into the groove. You listen, you make a good diagnosis you tell him what to do. And now, you know, it's 10 years later, you know, he actually gives a donation of $5,000 every year to the child. Wow. I mean, he's successful again, the business came back, but I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about what a great, what a great way to spend a professional life. Right. So, so literally every day does not seem like work. It seems, and it's challenging. COVID is really challenging. We're doing most of our work. We're seeing around 300 kids a day now. Oh, wow. We used to see 200, but 98% of them are on screens. A few of them show up in our San Mateo offices, and a few of them come every day in New York City, but it's a whole new world, and, and we're trying very hard to help parents. You know, we did 155 Facebook Lives uh, in the first few months of COVID that reached a few million parents on parenting during COVID. Um, 
the fact that we have 135,000 followers on Instagram would never have occurred to me even with that that's important, but that's really important if you don't want to only take care of people who have kids who are very symptomatic, but you just want to make parents better. And that right. if they're better, they will enjoy being parents more and more importantly, their kids will thrive. Right, right. And I think that's why this book and why the Child Mind Institute is so important and so crucial, because not only are you helping the children, you're retraining the parents on how to think on how to view life. And, you know, so many people listening to this are probably wondering, like, you know, gosh, how can I shift my mindset? How can I be the best parent that I can be? And we've we've talked about the the tenants that you have in the book. But do you have anything else like how a parent should approach their morning, their day? Do you do anything special to kind of set the tone for your day? So I, I practice what I preach. Um, I've tried, you know, uh, TM and it's not, I can't do it. You know, it's too much for me. Um, but I find two things really are very important. One, I have to do something physical in the morning and during COVID, you know, you're afraid to go to gyms. So no matter where I am, I like to take uh, a walk. I don't always, I'm not always silent. Sometimes I listen to a book. Sometimes I listen to the daily but I make sure that I'm walking a minimum of two miles, sometimes more. I certainly could pick up the pace. I don't always do that. Cardio is much better for you than just exercise. Um, but I do the one minute at least in the morning of just let, because so many thoughts come into your head. I mean, it's just, you can find yourself that if your heart's not racing, your brain, your amygdala is just on fire. Yeah. And if you could settle yourself, and, and I know it sounds kind of crunchy, but it really works that just for a minute, I'm, you know, and sometimes it drags into three, four, five minutes, um, but it's okay. Do you mean, because I don't feel tired afterwards. I actually feel energized and, and it may even force me to then sit down and say, why don't I just put down on a piece of paper? What are the three or four things I really have to do today? Not just my jam packed calendar that, you know, I am very fortunate. I have lots of people managing me. I feel like my mother is being channeled by these <laughs> men and women who help me all the time. But I'm being serious that what is really important for me today? What, and I think, by the way, if you do that, it even makes your Saturday, your Saturday and Sunday more valuable. Even though mm -hmm. there isn't a lot to do, it keeps you kind of like focused. And instead of just because I think the pull, especially when we're very stressed, is to spend a lot of time doing nonsense online, you know, just looking at how yeah. many times can you look at CNN or Fox or, 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 you know, nothing, just absolute gossip. Um, or how many hours can you spend doing Netflix <clears throat> where, you know, you're, you're clearly being tranquilized, you know what I mean? It's not, right. it's not active watching. And so that if you keep that, I, I, I think it's really good for your brain. Yeah. And, you know, and then when you slip and you eat too much or you eat the wrong things or you feel like I can't I can't be that person today, it's okay. You know, you you have to be as, as forgiving as I want you to be, the patience I want you to have, the warmth I want you to have. I with your kid, I, I want that to be for you too. Uh and this is when the book was written, it was bad, but it's <laughs> not as bad as it is now. And we really have to work hard at self-care so we can be good parents. I love that you're saying that. I mean, that's everything that this audience is about. That's everything that I preach, but you have all this data and all this science and all these years of experience to back it up. So hopefully with both of us hitting this, you know, I people hope so. really embody so. that. And just, you know, I love the fact that, you know, you're, 
motherhood, fatherhood, it's really challenging, but it really is joyful. I mean, it's just the best, in my opinion, if we feel we can handle it. And, uh, you know, yesterday I got a phone call um, at, at seven o'clock on my cell phone from my trainer. Okay. I thought he was canceling or something. <laughs> and I know this is a little inappropriate, but my wife is having the hardest time with our three-year-old and with our seven-month-old, and she's totally overwhelmed. Do you think we could find time just to talk to you about some parent management skills, you know, maybe Saturday or Sunday, or I'm not sure if we both can be on the phone, he said, because one of us is watching the kids, and, and I've never seen her like this, and I hope you're not upset. I said, I'm not upset. Don't worry about it. We'll find some time on Saturday, Sunday. But it sounds like she wants to talk to me more than you do. Mm. And um, and I'll see you on Sunday anyway. <laughs> I want less push-ups. <laughs> no, but I, this is really an insightful, thoughtful couple <clears throat> where I'm sure they're, you know, being a parent uh, of two kids under the age of four can be very, very trying, you know, and they're working and they don't mm. have the usual support of their parents or, you know, some kind of childcare. And if I can help them a little bit, you know, wouldn't that be wonderful? Because I know they love being parents. I mean, it's, um, you yeah. know, I know that how many trainers share the details of not only who the kid, what his name is, who he's named after, you know, uh, how the two boys get along. I mean, it's just wonderful. He's excited about being a dad. So. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about being a parent? What do you love? So, you know, I actually... Um, it's very interesting. I love talking to my kids and yet I have to be very careful about that because um, my kids somewhere along the line realize that I'm good at it and that they feel exposed after a while. They care <laughs> too much. Do you mm. mean? And so we have a game in our house that still goes on with my kids in their thirties where I'll say, how are things going? And they'll say five questions. <laughs> five questions. And with one of my kids, I actually say, my youngest son, I'll say, just give me five answers. <laughs> I'll figure out what the questions are. Just give me five answers. But I actually, now that they're adults and they have so many opinions and, and you know, one is a father already, I love the fact that we can exchange ideas on an almost, you know, we're still not friend friends. I'm still their parent. But the, the way they feel about George Floyd being murdered or what they and how helpless they feel or what they think about how active or inactive they are in the political process. And the other part that you start to love is the fact that they're buildings already, you know. So yeah. one kid is running a private equity firm who I thought was going to be a DJ. And one is married and is struggling with the juggling of, you know, fatherhood and being a husband and being involved in business. And my third kid you know, is so involved in politics and so progressive and so far to my left that, you know, I, I always feel he's pushing me in a way that's really um, a growth experience. And and he desperately wants to, he doesn't seem to want to make money. He wants to work um, in the government. He's trying, you know, he'd love to get a job in the State Department. And I think to myself, the State Department really be lucky to have him because he has experiences that I just never had. You know, he, mm. he I, I went to college, I went to medical school, I did an internship. You know, there's, it's easy if you find that ladder and you just keep, or that road. And, you know, after college, he decided to do a Fulbright. And then after that, he became a yoga instructor in Argentina. And then he went to law school, he went to Harvard Law School. So, you know, he was wow. no dummy. And then instead of going to work for a law firm, 
He went to Beirut and became work for Human Rights Watch. So mm. he's clearly an interesting human being who happens to be one of my kids. And it's always, I think, fascinating to have dinner with him because he has a path that he's on that is definitely more anxiety producing for someone like me because, you know, where's your next job? Where's your next apartment? You know, it, it all is very fluid. And, um, and the other kids in some ways, I find it very amusing. My older son will sometimes say to me, you know, dad, you don't understand money. And I'm thinking, no, I understand money. I just don't have money. <laughs> you know, it's like, I understand money, you know, no, that's enough. I just, I trust me. I understand it. It's, it's certainly not a priority, but number, so to be able to, to get to know and keep learning from your kids, I think is the best part. And then of course, it's nice if they'll take a jog with you or, or if they'll go out and play a round of golf or play some tennis with you. Um, but I find it also intriguing how they have a different, you know, I'm still married to their mother, but they have a different relationship with her mm-hmm. that they, my, my wife's an art teacher and an artist, but that they'll say to their mother, you know, um, I was thinking of coming uptown. Do you want to go to a museum? And mm-hmm. she says, sure. You know, I, or there's a gallery I really want to go to and they'll say, Oh, okay, I'll go with you. So they, they appreciate what we've given them. But at the same time, I think for us, it's kind of really exciting that, you know, I, I'm actually, we still worry about them, but it's a different kind of worry. Do you mean it's, it's much more fun now? You know? Yeah. When did you know that it was time to take down the scaffolding or is it still up in I pieces? Think, I think, I think it's a challenge. I have to tell you <laughs> one of those times where you need a good partner to say, you know, you're hovering here, you're definitely mm-hmm. hovering and, um, and you're being too helpful or, you know, it does feel a little bit like a concierge, like pull back. Yeah. But I think, um, I think it got easier um, once they got their first job, you know, because two of my sons went into, went to a bank to get their first job and it was totally alien. And then when Sam graduated law school or when he graduated college and he went and did a Fulbright, I mean, I knew what a Fulbright was, but um, the fact that he was living in Croatia, for God's sakes, you know, in Zagreb, which is just an okay city, but, and didn't speak Croatian, um, that it was so different than what my wife did as an artist or what I did going to medical school. Um, and, and we, and I have to tell you what made us both feel confident is that we obviously gave them enough strength yeah. and confidence to do something that they weren't following in our footsteps yeah. and that, you know, we start to realize the scaffold was there for us to be encouraging and to be supportive and structured, but they were doing this without us. The, the scaffold became superfluous. And so it was perfect to, to, to pour it, take it down. I, I find it fascinating when they do ask me for advice and I'm thinking, this is so above my pay grade. <laughs> no, I have to go look this up, you know, and in most of the time now, they're not asking for an answer. Mm-hmm. They're asking for support or they're asking for maybe an opinion or a thought or a feeling, but not that I think they know we don't have the, you know, we don't have that fund of knowledge to give them the answer as to whether or not, you know, they should buy an apartment or they should rent or something, you know, because yeah. they're living a different kind of lifestyle, which I think is great because their building looks very different than the building. And, and I could tell you that my parents, because they were Holocaust survivors, their scaffold was really tight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were so anxious that if I wasn't going to be able to stand up on my own, yeah. they were petrified. And I, 
frankly, I, I was fortunate. I just was never, that wasn't my worry. I mean, it was, and I also was pretty confident that I didn't know the answer. You mean like, should you be a DJ or should you be a doctor or should be a, a business guy? At a certain point, I just realized uh, I just don't have the answer here. And all I can do is be supportive, give them some structure and certainly be encouraging without being a, a fool about it. You know, not just anything they did was okay. You should, you have to be a little more selective about that and be true because otherwise they smell the bullshit right away. You know, Right. Right. But I think that so much of that comes back to you again, as a parent, as a person, as a human, you know, doing the self-care for yourself, having the self-awareness, doing the personal growth work, you know, getting your alone time every morning, your cardio. And I think that that trickles out and they trust you and they feel like they can talk to you, you know, not because you're a world renowned psychiatrist, but because you're an open, safe source for I think it's very hard for all of us to remain authentic. It's very challenging. You have to, you have to keep working at it. Um, at a certain point, because my oldest son was so quiet, we started jogging around the reservoir in uh, Manhattan early in the morning. And I worked at a hospital that was 35 minutes away in the suburbs, but we lived in the city. So it really meant getting up early because he had to go to school. And so we would do this twice a week on the weekends and once a week during the week. And when I mean quiet, we would go around that reservoir a whole time. He wouldn't talk. You know, I'm chattering away. It's nothing. <laughs> and usually by the second time around, he would say something. And so, you know, I'd get some insight into what was going on in his world. And <clears throat> it became really a joyful experience. And we started running in these road, uh, New York Roadrunners races where, you know, I was 40 and under and coming in 112th. He was 12 and under and he was coming in three, you know, number wow. three. And sometimes he would run back to check on me as he would run forward. But it came, in, the thing that killed it, which is somebody saw us and asked if they could write an article for, about us in the Ladies Home Journal, a magazine that doesn't exist anymore. And then to make it worse, once the article was written and they took a photograph of us, it was put in the TWA airline magazine, wow. another airline that doesn't exist. But that meant that when we, ra- when we uh, ran around the reservoir, people would say, oh, look, hey, you're Josh, right? You were, And they'd give him a high five. For a very shy, very self-conscious young little boy, we took the magic away. That little... Mm that little special bond that we had while we were running and he wasn't talking or he was talking became something that was a performance all of a sudden. And I think it's very important for us to be, you know, in retrospect, I should have said, no, I thought it was really cool. And we framed it and we gave it to my mom and dad. We gave it to my in-laws. We gave one to him. It ruined it. Do you mean? Mm -hmm. And I wasn't thinking carefully enough about who my, who my son was. You know, my third son would have said, what? We didn't make the cover. (laughs) All of a sudden, I didn't realize that people would read it and then respond to it. And I think that's what you have to, you know, that you have to be authentic, that I wasn't doing it and he wasn't doing it for the recognition. We were doing it because that was an easier way for us to communicate for a kid who is just not an easy communicator. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've covered so many things and, and I'm just so appreciative with everything that you know and have learned over the years. What's something that you would want the audience to remember from this talk? Well, I have to tell you that it's not, um, there's no pill, you know, there's no quick fix on this one. I think parenting does require us to scaffold ourselves and scaffold our kids. And 
you can rebuild the scaffold. You can strengthen it. You can redesign the blueprint. Um, as I said, there are a lot of do-overs, uh, but you have to be very consciously aware of it. You have to think about it and you have to treat it um, with the same kind of energy. I think all the time you should talk to your children the way you would talk to a friend or to a customer that you want to win over. You have to give it that kind of effort. And I think that if we think about parenting and do it consciously and, and take care of ourselves, the self-care, and our child care becomes better. And in the long run, we help our kids to grow and to be independent and, and happy and satisfied individuals who, who can accept, by the way, that there are going to be times where failure is an option. You know, it's, it's okay. We're going to, we'll rebuild the building or we'll rebuild the scaffolding so we can make the foundation stronger. So I think it's time, it's effort, uh, it's patience. And it's the fact that unfortunately, you know, even though I'm a psychopharmacologist, there's no pill for this one. There's no quick fix. This is, this is something that'll take time and effort, but in the long run will actually be remarkably rewarding. And I think fun. Yeah. And clearly you're living proof of that with your relationship with your three sons. So uh, I think everyone listening is going to go out and get the book. Where can they find the book and where can they find out more about the Child Mind Institute and you? Well, they can certainly find the book on Amazon or any of their local bookstores. Fortunately, it's everywhere. And I welcome them to come to childmind.org. Um, we've had 55 million visitors so far. We usually get about 2 million unique visitors a month. What's really important for parents to know about uh, childmind.org is that as an organization, we do not take money from the pharmaceutical industry. And while I'm a psychopharmacologist, if you, you don't want me picking a medication because someone took me out to dinner or someone gave me a donation or a very attractive articulate person came and gave me a pen and convinced me to use one medicine versus another. So mm -hmm. we don't let them on the grounds, wow. not because we don't like them. They're just too attractive, too articulate. <laughs> and we don't take money from guns, liquor, or tobacco. So we take money almost from everybody else, but <laughs> not for profit. We need to raise money. Um, but I think it's a, it, parents should have a confidence that if they come to childmind.org or our Facebook page to learn about how to parent during COVID, or they have questions about whether a child really has ADD or it's just inattentive and bored, um, they should know that we don't have a hidden agenda. Our agenda is that we want to transform the lives of children who have a mental health or learning disorder so that they have full, you know, uh, really rewarding lives and that we want parents to be better that, you know, and I think most good parents always want to be better. Yeah. So those are, you know, the books available and child minds open 24 seven. So. Beautiful. Thank you, Harold, so much. I'm so grateful that your parents made it to America and raised you here. Thank you for all the work that you're Thank doing. You. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so grateful that we got this time together today. And if you love this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would share it out on your social media. Make sure to tag us at Motherhood Unstressed. Connect with us at Motherhood Unstressed. I'd love to connect with you uh, and see where the work has gone in the world. And make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss out on an amazing interview with an incredible guest or our weekly guided meditations every Wednesday. 